So this morning we come to this very special, fairly rare privilege. We don't get to do this again for eight years. This rare privilege to celebrate Eucharist on Christmas morning. We, of course, come to praise God for the gift given us in his son. As Psalm 96 said, to worship God, for he is great, worth a thousand hallelujahs. So just before we come to Eucharist, we want to take a moment, if you want to look at your uh, order of worship, your liturgy in your hands, we want to look briefly at this passage in Titus and to see what it might say to us about what the birth of Jesus means. So Paul begins by saying salvation is available to everyone. God's readiness to give and forgive is now public. So let's look at that for a minute. God's readiness. This is an allusion to his character. He is always ready. He's always the initiator. He's always the one more full of grace and mercy and loving kindness than we could ever imagine. And that it marks his bent towards us, that he is always ready to respond to us. Generous and powerful. Whenever any Orthodox Jew like Paul is reflecting on God, he would almost always have in his mind deliverance. Egypt is the classic Jewish story. And Paul wants us to know that when we find ourselves bound in any way or caught in any way in a sin or caught in misguided thinking or confused thinking, that God's readiness is already always there, prepared to deliver us from wherever we might be stuck. And then Paul says this inner character of God, this, this readiness that is always true about him is now going public. And that little phrase is meant to help us think of like a plot line in a story that there was this Jewish past and now Jesus has acted in the, few, in the present. And as he did so, God's future, what he intends with humanity is now public. And of course, one of the biggest aspects of that is the Ali Ali income free the Gentiles heard. That what God had always intended for the whole, all of humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve, to love him and serve him, be with him, be his cooperative friends, the beginning of the end of that story is now coming public. And for Paul, and I think this is very important to us who are losing any sense of, you know, kind of a mental structure for morality. For Paul, this is always the basis for how Christians should live. Paul is never merely doing morals. He's especially never doing morals the way the Greek world would have. For Paul, the basis of Christian morality is that if, if the future has broken into today, and the future is where this is going, to God's perfection, then we have an invitation to live into that future today and to live in accordance with God's future. Now, you don't have to be a, a genius sociologist or a theologian to just think with me for a second. Think of all the ways of living that are on offer today. Some of them more sensible than others. But we always have this invitation, as we'll say in a minute, to renounce those things and to live today as we will be in the future. 
So for Paul, this was never meant to be like an oppressive sort of religious or church-based moralism that would be put upon us, but rather what Paul's thinking, and the reason we read this text on a, during Christmas time, is Paul's probably thinking something like this, having glimpsed in Jesus the way things are going to be. That is to say, when there's a new world that's created and nurtured by God's self-giving love and grace, when, when that which we see in Jesus, which is true of God, when that nurturing of God, when his self-giving love and grace comes to its conclusion, that then is an invitation to live now into the purposes of God. Well, you see, next our text says that we're being shown, um, that grace is showing us something. It's an interesting concept that grace teaches, right? We might think of grace as forgiving sins. We might think of grace as God's unmerited favor in some way, and those things are all fine. But you may not have ever thought that grace teaches. But see, this is what's fundamental, I think, in fact, to Paul's sense of morals, that it's not our guilt. It can sometimes be an ally. Shame rarely is. But for Paul, the, the predominance of how a human being gets shaped into the image of God comes from grace. Now, why would Paul say that, that grace teaches? Because again, Paul is very aware that for the Greek ethics around him in his time and in his season, it was driven by individual reason did you catch that? Individual reason and willpower. And I think we could say, ironically, much like us today. I mean, I, you, I don't expect you to remember what I say every week, so you may have forgotten that a few weeks ago I told you that at the end of every year, the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, adds a word or two. And uh, this year, the word they added was post-truth. And if that notion of post-truth applies anywhere. I mean, it came basically out of our political discourse and all the fake news and all that stuff. But I, th and it applies there, I'm sure, but I think it may apply the most in the area of morals, what we think of as morals. How should we then live? What does it mean to be human? Who am I? Why am I here? Am I simply an autonomous, self-filling desirer? Uh, am I, what am I? Who am I? What does it mean to be alive? But Paul wants to say that it's the gracious revelation of God that teaches us, look at your passage, how to turn our backs on a godless indulgent life. That is to say, a life, a life marked by desires that reflect our inner brokenness and the values and priorities of the broken world in which we live. And then Paul uses this very strong Greek verb to renounce. That, you know, uh, the message gets us here, turning our backs. The word is renounce. It's a very strong word that means, look at me here, to look at what's on offer in human life, the stories that could make sense of your life, and then look at God's future, which came in this baby born in a manger. Then look at Jesus' life, how he lived, and how that's an example of how it will be when God has his way. Then Paul says, you have a choice to make. And he says, the grace of God is teaching us to renounce, to reject, to abandon, to forsake, to repudiate, to disown, to throw off all those things that are on offer. Now, if you just think for a moment, one of Jesus's first words out of his mouth publicly was, repent. And repent means essentially that. Review 
all of your ways of thinking and living and turn from what doesn't align with the kingdom of God and come follow me. So the text says, though, look next, that he's not only showing us how to renounce, but the grace of God is showing us how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. Meaning something like we're, create, we're creatures meant to find fulfillment through image bearing, through reflecting the image of God to our world in his kind of generosity and kindness and love. And this is a very simple concept. What Paul's saying here is something like godless indulgent lives push aside the kind of sober or self-controlled or upright or just and godly or devout lives that Paul envisions for Jesus' followers to be living. So what Paul's picturing here is something like this. A life made right by God that then joins God in putting the world to rights. And what Paul pictures here way more than, you know, the kind of moralisms that we might have picked up from our parents or the kind of moralisms we do with our dogs. Do you know what I mean? Like, no bad dog or here have a treat. Do you know what I mean? That kind of moralistic thing that we so easily fall into. What Paul's picturing here is a, is a people who are followers of Jesus who are at ease in their new skin. They're at ease in this new world, non-anxious, non-defensive, that it becomes natural and normal for us to live in a conversational relationship with God. And that this two-way action of God, forgiving us on the one hand, delivering us from our sins on the other hand, this is the way of life for which Jesus set us free. As the text says, if you look with me, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to, and then look at these three things, to first free us from that dark, rebellious life and put us into this good and pure life represented by Jesus, making us as followers of Jesus a people he can be proud of. Energetic in goodness. Love that phrase. There is a way of being energetic for goodness in the world that, that um, includes but, but um, transcends Again, what we might think of as social justice or social projects, it can include all that, but the kingdom can never be reduced to that. This is a whole life. Um, my heart, soul, mind, body, and will are all oriented naturally, not gruntingly, naturally towards the good of others. And therefore, it's a natural outflow to contribute positively to the people and society around us. And I just want to say, as the light and dark gets starker and starker. It's so important that we don't fall into hating our culture or running from it. We precisely have to stay connected to it so we can be salt and light. But we stay connected, fully differentiated, unapologetically, humbly saying, I've looked at all the stories on offer and I've looked at all the world's religions and with all due respect for every ethnicity, every tribe, every nation, every historic spiritual path, with all due respect, I am a follower of Jesus. I've chosen and I've given my life to him. And then there's this new life, Paul says, that once we do that, there's this new life that starts in us. And again, I love this phrase. It whets our appetites for that glorious day when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear again. And there we have the pivot from Advent to Christmas tide. 
And, you know, the, the pivot in our thinking, um, you know, the way our lectionary work is, works is that one year in Advent, the readings tend to be focused on Jesus' first coming. The next year, they tend to be focused on his second coming. And in a morning like this, we just think, okay, one day, Jesus is going to come again. Our great God and Savior will appear. And what God has done in us through grace in Christ is to whet our appetites for that day. Were I being uh, young Todd the evangelist, this would have been a good time to say, is it true? Where are your appetites? Are, is your appetite being wet for that day? As we said, all Advent, it all comes true. The story comes true and we find our full meaning as human beings. Well, our gospel is a good place to conclude um, as an invitation to come to Eucharist this morning, to come as a personal response to the person of Jesus. And again, you know, the, the young evangelist Todd would have found in our gospel reading this morning lots of evangelistic notions, like there was no place for him in the end, you know. Is there a place for him in your heart, right? And maybe contrasting with the shepherds who in their innocence saw the good news and with great awe responded, or the angel and the heavenly host praising God, you know, putting it in our vernacular, like, we see it, we get it. Wow, this is amazing. Well, this is so because the Christmas story, in my view, is the ultimate basis for hope. And that hope is to the heart and soul what oxygen is to the lungs. The human beings seek it and must have it. And once you decide what you hope in, you will then naturally organically give your loyalty and tight commitment to that thing in which you hope. There is no other way. Once you've placed your hope in it, you, in something, you will fight for it like a man or a woman suffocating fights for air. This is why it's not just religious rhetoric to sing about hope at Christmas or faith, hope, and joy. This is not religious rhetoric. This is deep insight into the human condition. And without the hope on offer that the world's stories will not have the last say, that this baby who was born is the beginning of the end and God will someday have his say, that is our hope. And so now as we come to prayer and we come to Eucharist, we too say, we get it. We give ourselves to this story and to the purposes of God and that he is our hope in troubled times. Amen.